Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. My name is Rick Thomas. In 2018, I wrote the book, Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. That book is a it's my journey. It's autobiographical. As I spent four years studying the book of Job, and I was doing somewhat of a hybrid between what God was teaching me as I was trying to learn what he taught Job. This was the season when my wife left and I was going through a, a horrible divorce. And I, I told the Lord, I want to remember these things. I want to take copious notes. And this was before the internet. This was before I was journaling. And, and so I, I just asked the Lord to submit these things in my mind. I, I want to keep them there. And then maybe someday, because I felt like that there would be a future day. I read the end of Job. And it said that he turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And I felt like God would turn my captivity too at some point, and I would be released from this crucible of suffering. And sure enough, that did happen, but it took several years for it to happen. And so I told the Lord I wanted to remember these things. And in 2018, uh, I took those things that I had been meditating on for 30 years, and I put them in a book called Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. Job said that the thing that I have feared has come upon me. And we know from the early hours of Job that he struggled with uh, what may or may not happen to his children. And so there was a little bit of fear that was motivated him, even his works or his sacrifices. And the thing that he did fear came upon him. And suffering is our most feared blessing. And I use the word blessing because ultimately uh, we live with a a, a counterintuitive understanding of how things work and how God operates in our lives in this world. The gospel looked like foolishness. It looked like the weakness of God, but we learned that it was actually the power of God and it was the wisdom of God. And so I say that suffering is our most feared blessing, uh, but that is a struggle because in my own experience, I did not have a sound theology of suffering. I just did not have a way of processing it, and then God began to teach me as he launched me into the crucible of suffering. And so 30 years later, I wrote the book, Suffering Well. And what I want to do here is I want to share with you the preface of that book. And so that's what I'm going to do right now. Here's the preface to the book, Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing as I walk you through those early days of my wife leaving and the eventual divorce and a few things that happened afterward. On April the 8th, 1988, it all went wrong. I would later call that day the beginning of woes. After a full day of work, I walked into our home shortly past five o'clock, and I noticed the missing piano in the living room. And when I looked across the living room and saw that the piano was gone, shock just riveted through my body. I immediately knew what had happened. My wife of nine years decided that she had enough and it was time to leave. There was a simple note on the kitchen table, and it read, You're right. We can't go on like this. I will call you later. 
I had shared those sentiments about our marriage impasse a few weeks earlier, not knowing how those words would haunt me for years to come. You see, we had been having on-again, off-again arguments for over three years. I don't have any valid reason for why we were arguing except to say that we were both selfish, we were young, and we were ignorant. Somehow, in some way, we went off the tracks. It was happening gradually, and when you're in the heat of the battle, you never have a clear awareness of your bearings, and for reasons that I did not fully understand, we just could not make it right. We had moved to Greenville, South Carolina two years earlier in 1986 so that I could attend a small Bible college. I thought God wanted me to go into full-time Christian ministry, eventually becoming a pastor. My wife was happy about this decision, and she helped me. We worked on it. We collaborated, and we believed that this was God's will for our lives. Our church also supported us and encouraged us all along the way. I mean, they even graciously paid for my tuition the entire time that I went to this Bible college. It seemed to be the right thing to do. And looking back on it, I believe this was God's pleasure and direction for our lives. However, I had no clue of the zigs and zags that he was going to bring into our lives because he had a plan that was far different than what I had outlined in my mind. We make our plans, but God orders our steps. There is no doubt of that truth that we learn in the Bible. Before marriage, we were not Christians. In 1979, we eloped. We had bought a small mobile home and placed it on our 3.42 acres that we had paid off before eloping. Five years later, the Father mercifully came into my life to regenerate me. And though we were not bad people... Salvation was an essential new beginning for us. God saves good people too. But the truth is we were totally depraved and we needed God's regeneration. But we lived a decent life and we didn't bother anyone. We would be your typical countrified southern family. We went to the local fish camp on Friday night. We worked in the yard all day on Saturday and attended our church meetings twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday evening to boot. We had two children, a girl born in 1981 and a boy born in 1983. We were living the all-American dream. And then I believe that God called me into the ministry, and that's how we think about those things within Baptist circles, which is what I was a part of. And so after arriving in Greenville in May of 1986, we set up camp and we began our new college experience that coming August. We were above 26 years old. I was working full-time during the day at a local recycling factory while going to school full-time Monday through Friday during the evenings. Our pastor in Greenville taught us, and this is a quote, You take care of God's business and He will take care of yours, end quote. And I was young in the Lord and I could not I could not be taught enough. I I was just like a fish in water, and so whatever was said, I believed it. But I do want you to hear me when I say I don't don't place any blame or any fault on that pastor or fundamentalism or, or anything else as a cause for why these things happen. I am fully believing that 
As Joseph would say in 50:20 of Genesis, what anyone meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, again, I'm not attributing evil to anyone, but let's just say it this way. The bad things that happened to me, God meant them for good. Okay, and I want you to understand that because I would not want anyone to take up an offense or to think harshly toward any of this. This is God's sovereign work in my life, even though back in that day, it was impossibly hard to believe. And so when this pastor said, you take care of God's business and he will take care of yours, I believed him. And so I poured everything into caring for the Lord's business. I was working full time. I was taking a full load of classes. I was preaching in the nursing home on Sundays and passing out, passing out Bible tracts downtown Greenville during my spare time. I learned two years later that God did not take care of my business as I sat in an empty house, wondering where it all went wrong. One of the things the Father taught me in the years to come was taking care of His business meant taking care of my family too. I had bought into the one-sided notion that ministry was exclusively outside of the family. I became a blind, spiritualized, sanctified ministry addict who needed a wake-up call. I've thought about it years later that I wonder if if God had called me into the ministry or if I went into the ministry as a pastor and still unchanged, I would be that person today, and I shudder to think of what that person might be like in a pulpit today if God had not mercifully entered into this, this spiritualized, sanctified ministry addict. Other than our continual low-grade arguing, things were going pretty well. Ironically, the disagreements were rarely significant, which blinded me to the essentialness of dealing with those arguments as they came biblically. As I learned the hard way, the accrual effect of unresolved conflict can develop into a torrent of trouble that can destroy a family. A contributing factor to the demise of our family was in June of 1987, a year after we arrived in Greenville. I received one of those dreadful phone calls that, that no one wants to accept. My mother called to tell me that someone murdered my older brother in an argument. He went to prison when he was 17 years old and had been in and out of prison from that time until he was murdered 15 years later. He had gotten into a scuffle and was shot twice in the head with a double-barrel shotgun. The assailant took hold of the gun's barrel and used it as a sledgehammer to crush my brother's skull, which eventually that is what killed him. The two shots to the face did not. My brother had just gotten out of prison in January of 1987. This was the third time, and per his usual, he would not avoid trouble. He was an institutionalized convict. He had been in prison so long that he had a hard time living on the outside. And so he would do things that would get him locked up. The last time I saw him alive was on Easter Sunday in April 1987. For whatever reason that I'm still not sure of, he came to our local church meeting. I know in his heart of hearts, he respected me because God was turning my life around, and it was really different from the life that we lived as children. And toward the end of that church meeting, I noticed that he was noticeably shaken as he was processing the message from Exodus. 
It was one of those rare moments for a convict who had learned how to be all things to all people. But this time he could not hide his fears. I remember looking at his hands as he clutched the pew in front of him and his hands were a blue and white because he had gripped them so hard. I went to him and I asked if he wanted to become a Christian. I told him how it was apparent that God was working in his life and he needed to trust him. I asked him if he understood what the preacher was saying. He said he did, but he could not be saved today because, as he said, there's some things that I need to do. That was the last time that I saw him alive. We returned to Greenville. It took me a while to process his murder. My wife said it had changed me, and she was right. It was a hard summer, 1987, our second year in Greenville. It was also during the summer of 1987 when she began seeing another man. She told me about it the following summer, a few months after she left in 1988. They worked together. He was married. I'm not sure how long that relationship lasted, By the time April 1988 rolled around, my ministry-centered lifestyle, my brother's murder, our arguing, her adultery, it was just too much. And she had decided to move out and take our children with her. She took our children with her, and there was a moment when, when I could have taken the children and filed for legal custody during the separation. I remember rolling up on the uh, children's Uh, daycare center where they were staying, and I thought I could just drive out there and get those kids and then go and file for legal separation. But I was scared to hit that nuclear option, knowing God hated divorce, and there was no way it would happen to me. Besides, if I attempted to take the children, it would incite her and ensue a divorce, no doubt. Of course, now as I look through the rearview mirror, regrettably, I wish I had gotten the kids and filed for legal custody. I chose not to press the issue until our problems were solved, which again, I knew God would come through for me. When we finally went to court two years later, the judge awarded the kids to their mother And he did so for two reasons. He says, one, the children had been with their mother the past two years. And number two, he did not want to uproot them again. He said their lives were complicated enough. And since they had been with her, he did not want to disrupt their situation. And though on the face of it, it sounded like wisdom, I disagreed. Of course, as the years have shown, it was an unwise decision. The judge also said he did not see a Christian upbringing as a positive as he recited a newspaper article that touted secular upbringing as being on par with what a Christian could do. I say that because a significant point of my argument in the child custody battle was the merits of a Christian family versus a non-Christian one. He was not convinced. And I believe he was predetermined to award our children to the newly legalized ex-wife. It was a sunny day. I remember stepping out on the courthouse steps in Greenville, South Carolina, looking up into the bright, beautiful blue sky and weeping. It was final. I lost my wife. I lost our two children on that lovely fall day. 
God does hate divorce, and my hatred for divorce was growing by the minute. I was absolutely stunned as I wept on those steps. I could not believe what had just happened. Why would God permit something so obviously against his will? The judge silenced two years of praying, asking, working, begging, pleading when he slammed his gavel on the bench. I learned that day how truth and a court of law do not necessarily coexist. For the record, he asked me what I wanted to do before he made his decision. I told him I wanted to reconcile with my wife. He asked if I understood her position. She wanted a divorce. I told him I was aware of her perspective, but I wanted it as a matter of court record. I disagreed that our marriage could not change, and regardless of the court's opinion, I was against the divorce. I also wanted to state my case publicly and for court record for conscience' sake. I did not want to look back years later and say, did I leave anything on the table? Did I say everything that I wanted to say? Did I do all that I knew that I could do? It didn't matter. He made it a matter of court record, and I was divorced. It reminds me of Job 23, verses 13 and 14, where Job was wanting to get God to change his mind, but God would not budge. This is how Job said it. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind." That text, of scripture, that text of Scripture caused me to tremble. When I walked into the living room of our home on April the 8th, 1988, I immediately went running through the house looking for my family. I knew what had happened when I saw that missing piano in the living room, and I cannot explain to you exactly what happened in my mind on that day other than to say I lost it. Upon seeing the piano missing, I sprinted toward the bedrooms, looking in the corners and the closets for my wife and children. It was a hysterical move, but I was hysterical. She didn't take everything, only personal belongings, beds, furniture, and some personal items. The kids' bedrooms were empty. I went on a frantic search for my family. I remember going into the kitchen, looking through the cupboards and drawers, but to no avail. Yes, the drawers too. I pulled them open. I was shuffling through the knife and spoon and fork drawers. My family was not in the house, nowhere, no trace. They were gone. And I knew that they would not return anytime soon. I ran into the hallway and from the kitchen, I fell prostrate on the floor. I panicked. I could hardly breathe. I was trying to catch my breath, huffing from the depths of my soul. It was more like a gasp or a bellow or some sad, hollow sound. I could not cry. I later called it beyond tears. The agony and terror transcended my fruitless efforts to call up tears. Oddly enough, I was stoic before my wife left rarely showing any emotion. It was part of my coolness, my charm. I learned not to let my feelings be known to others a long time ago because weakness was unacceptable. I had mastered the skill of self-reliance as I carefully edited a public version of myself that kept the real me tucked and hidden from scrutiny. 
on April the 8th, God blew all that up. God broke my self-reliant, masquerading heart. I have cried regularly since that dreadful day. The last thing I remember from my first Friday alone, April the 8th, was sitting on the floor of my living room around 10 p.m. I opened my humongous King James Bible to Psalm 51, not because of the point of the psalm, David's adultery with Bathsheba, but because I knew the first two words that led to David's broken and contrite spirit. I wanted to read the first two words of that psalm. I wanted to look at them with my red, blurry, softened eyes. I wanted those first two words to soak deep into my soul. I needed healing, and those two words were perfect for me. And so I opened my Bible to that blessed psalm, and I uttered those first two words. Have mercy. And then I fell over on the floor. The last thing I remembered from that night, when I awoke the following day, I was in my bed, and I have no clue, zero clue as to how I got into my bed. I got up on that Saturday morning, and I went to work. It was my routine. My routine was also to weigh myself on the floor scales in our recycling plant. We had these four-by-four floor scales that were probably about three inches off the floor. You could step on them like a platform, and a digital readout would give you whatever the weight was on those scales. That was my habit. Every day when I left work, I would step on the scales. Every day when I came in, I would step on the scales. I left the plant at 5 p.m. on Friday. I weighed 168 pounds, which is what I weigh today. Fifteen hours later, just before 8 a.m. on Saturday, I weighed 158 pounds. That is a true story. It was the beginning of woes. It's the only way that I can explain how desperate, how dark, how panicked I was. How unsure, untrusting, as God was dismantling me piece by piece. The separation and the soon-to-be divorce started the Lord's merciful divine deconstruction. And the troubles kept rolling in. For example, I belong to that slice of Christianity called fundamentalism. This legalistic demographic has a, I call it a one-strike-you're-out policy as it pertains to a divorced person being in ministry. Now, it's in the fine print, and you probably won't see it. I didn't see it for sure, but they told me that I could not tell people about, or I could tell people about Jesus, but I could no longer preach to anyone about Jesus. They disqualified me from Christian ministry. During this time, the company I worked for started phasing out their plants around the country. Our plant was on their list. They shut down our office. There was no notice. I was the plant manager. The district manager came, and we were out of the plant in less than two hours. Within four years, I lost my wife, our children, and job. We also had to liquidate the property that we held in North Carolina after we moved to Greenville. That was a part of the post-divorce proceedings. I was broke and no longer able to afford our rental in Greenville. The possibility of being a pastor was out the window, too. A college friend told me about a lady who owned a dilapidated mobile home along a tree line in a pasture that I could rent for $125 a month. 
He had just moved back to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And so without a place to stay and no job or income, I took it and spent the next four years in that trailer. I began picking up aluminum cans to sell, to make some change, to buy food. I had to leave my trailer in the woods eventually. I could not find a job or enough aluminum cans to turn in for money. I packed my belongings in my Buick and moved back to North Carolina to live in the back room of my 90-year-old grandmother's home. It was added irony. You see, I left home as an angry 15-year-old to move in with my grandmother, and now I'm back. Less than 15 years later, God will go to terrible lengths to get his child's attention. He was creatively working in me to shape my theology of suffering worldview. I learned that he had to change me fundamentally before he could use me optimally. How could I serve him well in his world without walking in the steps of Jesus? How would I walk in the steps of Jesus without suffering? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. This is how Job talked about it. When he began to gain sovereign clarity, he said this, But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I did not understand these things then, but I see them now. Job talked about the need to gain that sovereign clarity about his troubles. And so in this context, I embarked on a four-year experiential study in the book of Job. The Lord took away everything dear to me. I was single, I was fatherless, I was destitute, with no future hope of, of restoration on any front, or even a future that would be any different from the present darkness that I was living in. The pain was so profound that I could feel it. That's the way that I describe it. You see, there is a normal darkness that comes over you, and then there is a darkness of the soul that can be felt deeply. This latter darkness transcends words. Sublunary language never reaches the height or the depth of that kind of darkness. Some of you have been there and you know that if you say words to try to communicate what you're going through, you feel like you're downgrading what you're going through. The English language doesn't reach that high to that level of suffering where you interact with God in the crucible. You feel it, though you can't articulate it, is how I used to say it. It's deeper than deep, with only one cure. That cure is, Jesus was clear, you must die. In John 12, 24, he said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. God needed to kill me in order to produce fruit. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. This is John talking in 1 John 3, 1. What I could not see, what I was afraid to see, what I, was, what I refused to see was how the Lord was in my suffering. I did not want to perceive Him. To look at God in the crucible of suffering was to stare into my death. As clarity began to break through, it dawned on me what He was up to in my life. 
I had an epiphany. The epiphany is quite clear. It's what First John was saying. You see, the Lord had a son, and it was his pleasure to crush his son. This is what Isaiah was saying in 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. Now I am one of his sons. Why should I consider it strange for my father to make me walk in the steps of his beloved son? In Mark 1, 11 and 12, this beautiful verse, it wasn't the first time I read it this way. But this is what it says when Jesus came down to the river to get baptized. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, you would think at that point that Jesus would step out on his public platform and begin ministering. That's what I was thinking when I graduated Bible college, that I would step out on my public platform and begin a ministry, just like Jesus did here in Mark chapter 1. The voice came down from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But the very next sentence says, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. I did not see that coming. I am thinking that you have spent 30 years doing the will of your Father, and now you have come down to this river to get baptized. It's time to say, repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But before you step out on that public platform, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. As I began to ascertain God's love for me as a son, I asked him to forgive me for my stubborn, self-righteous anger that demanded he would see and do things my way, he forgave me, and nothing changed. He forgave me. Nothing changed, practically speaking. However, there was something ever so slightly stirring in my heart. It was as though a sprinkle of hope was coming, like a small cloud forming in the sky about the size of a man's hand. Eventually, the rain did come. And when it did, the Lord reaffirmed to me that He is going to complete what He started when I first saw the light. In His mysterious timing, He started equipping me to release me to serve others. This book, Suffering Well, is the fruit of what He taught me during those dark days. I did ask Him, do not let me forget this. Someday I want to share these things with others. And I want you to know that he, what He birthed in me in the crucible of suffering, I, I want you to benefit from these things as I put these things in words, in print, in a book. I want to explain the best I can what he did, how it hurt, and the turning of my captivity that came as I journeyed through the book of Job. If you haven't read Suffering Well, I, I commend it to you. And if you do read it, perhaps you can remind yourself that omniscient God had you in mind today when he called me on April the 8th, 1988 to walk in the suffering steps of Jesus. For to this you have been called, Peter said, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. The hope that I would want you to draw from this 
in addition to anything the Spirit of God lays on your mind, is that if you're going through any kind of suffering, I am now looking in the rearview mirror on that day several decades ago, and I can see clearly in the rearview mirror. And what I could not see that day in the crucible of suffering, I see this day that God had a plan, and that plan has blown my mind. He gave Job more than he had before. Now, sure, it came with heartbreak and it came with loss. I get that. And so if you're going through any kind of difficulty, I want you uh, to have hope. I want you to know that God is working an incredible plan. If this book will serve you suffering well, I would encourage you to get it and to read it. I've just shared with you the preface, Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.